on a Sunday morning, probably much like this one, April 1801, a Baptist preacher by the name of John Leland got into his pulpit in Cheshire, Massachusetts, and preached a strange sermon, a sermon about cheese. He wanted to build a giant cheese, a cheese made from the milk of every cow within the city limits of Cheshire County. And the people actually liked the idea, and they decided, let's do this. And so Darius Brown made an enormous cheese hoop, one that was four feet across and 18 inches deep. They declared July 20th to be a milk holiday, and all the farmers brought milk from every single cow, over a thousand cows, brought it, put it in one big cauldron, and the curds were overflowing the cheese hoop that they had built for it. The ladies put the salt and spices in, and the Reverend Leland said a blessing over the cheese, and they sang him together. And when it was done, it took 11 days to press this cheese, but when it was finished, it weighed 1,235 pounds. And it was stamped with the motto of a famous, then just newly elected president, Thomas Jefferson. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. You see, Leland had presented this idea to his congregation that they would build this giant cheese from Cheshire, Massachusetts, and present it to Thomas Jefferson as a congratulatory gift on being elected the president of the United States. And so they put the cheese on a snow sled and they drug it to New York City where it got on a boat and it was shipped to Baltimore, then loaded onto a horse-drawn carriage. Take a lot of horses, I feel like, to pull a 1,235-pound cheese wheel. And it made it to Washington, D.C. This, quote, mammoth cheese is what it was called. And the fun thing is Leland preached in every town as the cheese passed through and everyone was wondering what on earth is going on. Well, the cheese made it to Washington, D.C. the night of New Year's Eve, just in time to be presented on New Year's Day, 1802. Believe it or not, something even bigger than a giant wheel of cheese was taking place. While in Washington, Leland quietly delivered a letter discreetly to Thomas Jefferson from the Danbury Baptist Association, addressed to the president asking for legislation that would guarantee religious liberty. The letter states, our sentiments are uniformly on the side of religious liberty. That religion is at all times and places a matter between God and individuals. That no man ought to suffer in name, person, or effects on account of his religious opinions. That the legitimate power of civil government extends no further than to punish the man who works ill to his neighbors. A few weeks later, Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter back saying that he totally agreed. In fact, he made a promise to Leland and his Baptist friends to put together a piece of legislation that would one day be called the Bill of Rights, of which the First Amendment would be freedom of religion. 
In his work, Right of Conscience, Inalienable, Leland writes, Every man must give account of himself to God, and therefore every man ought to be at liberty to serve God in a way that he can best reconcile to his conscience. If government can answer for individuals at the Day of Judgment, let men be controlled by it in religious matters. Otherwise, let men be free. I share this story with you to show you, to illustrate, that liberty of conscience has been a central tenet of what it means to be a Baptist for hundreds of years. We believe that no man or woman should be compelled, forced, coerced to worship God contrary to his or her conscience. We cannot force, legislate, conquer, or even baptize people into the kingdom of God. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of man alone. The only worship that God accepts is love that issues from a pure heart and a clean conscience and a sincere faith. And all three of those are gifts that God must grant, a pure heart, a clean conscience, and a sincere faith. So as we return this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 20, this chapter gives us an opportunity to see what liberty of conscience is not and what liberty of conscience is. And I found this story particularly ironic as far as its timing in our series because we have an election approaching us uh, in a week. And I think this is a very timely message that we all need to hear as we head to the ballot boxes next week. So let's turn together to 2 Samuel chapter 20. If you found it, I'm going to allow us to remain seated so that we can give our undivided attention to the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 1. Now, there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to some fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out from him, and there went out after him Joab's men, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath, fastened on his thigh, as, and as he went forward, it fell out. 
And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And needless to say, he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever favors David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Maaka, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maaka, and they cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, Come here, that I may speak to you. And he came near to her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder, and Sheba was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. So ends the reading of God's word this morning. What a bizarre tale. And uh, on a surface level reading, you might walk away thinking the moral of this story is not cool to stab your friends, but totally cool to behead your enemies. And that's not really the point of this story, although it is interesting uh, how the people are killed in this chapter. In fact, both Sheba and Joab, so we see Sheba here receiving the due penalty for his sin. But Joab himself will also, not on this day, but in a day not too far ahead, receive divine justice against his crimes as well. You just have to turn forward to 1 Kings chapter 2 if you'd like to see what becomes of him. These two men actually give us a great opportunity this morning to explore our own hearts because each of us 
tends to fall off the horse on one side or another. Either we become like Sheba in our conscience, or we tend towards being Joab. Both men stand condemned in the eyes of God and of God's anointed king. So it's not that one of these men is more righteous than the other. Both of them are condemned. When it comes to your conscience, I wonder, is it, number one, libertine? Is it, secondly, more legalistic? Or, thirdly, does it follow the Lord? Let's look at each of these characters and, and then question ourselves and how we may be like or unlike them. A libertine, what is that word? We've maybe heard it before. It's not a type of cracker. It's someone who casts off conscience, who abandons feeling of any moral guilt, who doesn't care what is right or wrong. That's what is calling out in the voice of Sheba to the people in verse 1. Now, there happened to be a worthless man. We're told that this man is worthless from the start. So anything that proceeds from his mouth is folly. He blows the trumpet and he proclaims, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, so Israel. What Sheba is crying out for is he is hearkening back to days gone by. Simpler times when there was no king, when there was no one binding our consciences by the law of God, enforcing the laws, telling us what's right and what's wrong. We need to go back to the time of the book of Judges. That's really when the people of Israel flourished. In those days, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's go back to those times. If you have read the book of Judges, by the way, you hear the irony in anyone's desire of wanting to return to that book. But David hears the trumpet blast of Sheba the libertine, and he realizes how serious this is. Look at verse 6 with me. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Think about everything that Absalom did against David. And he's saying, this guy, things could prove to be even worse. You see, Absalom attacked the king, whereas Sheba, the libertine, is attacking the kingdom. Absalom threatened David personally. Sheba is threatening the people of Israel. This is a tactical shift on the part of Satan. He used Absalom to try to attack and destroy King David. That failed. Absalom dies. You know what? Instead of attacking the king, why don't I attack the king's people? We see the same tactical shift depicted in Revelation chapter, 7, chapter 12. If you uh, remember several Christmases ago, we saw that there was a dragon there in the city of Bethlehem hoping to destroy and devour the child of the woman that was born. Satan didn't succeed. But when the dragon realizes that this promised child has been snatched up to heaven, he then begins to wage war on the woman and her children. How? How does Satan try to destroy the kingdom? By unbinding the conscience. He sends Sheba the libertine among all the tribes of Israel proclaiming this. Every man to his tent. 
scattering the flock from their shepherd so that then the wolf can pick them off one by one. This is the first temptation for all of us in our consciences. Libertines let sin slide. They unbind the conscience. Did God really say, is that really what that means? They make blurry the clear commands of God. They comfort sinners that they shouldn't feel guilty about their sins. The real problem is not the sin, it's how guilty you feel about it. They comfort themselves in disobedience to God. There is there's no judgment coming. There's no real king, not in the enforcing justice and wrath sense of things. No, Jesus is real, but he's more like a best buddy. He's a friend. God is like a kind uncle. We really have nothing to be worried about. Sleep with who you like. Believe what you like. Worship how you like. Work how you like. Go to your own tent, your own house, your own life, and you do you. Don't worry about anybody else. You don't have responsibilities to a king or to a kingdom. This is the voice of the libertine. The apostles of the New Testament warn that men and women just like Sheba aren't just in the Old Testament, but they arise among the church generation after generation. False prophets arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. It's from Second Peter. Or what about Jude 1, verse 4? For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Denial of the master. Denial of our king. Denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Cast off all authority. Do whatever feels right to you. You don't need to pray, your kingdom come. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. No. Seek first whatever is best for you. Because Jesus will forgive you. The libertine is happy to receive the king's forgiveness, but not his commandments. Is this your conscience? Are you quick to brush aside the clear word of your king when you read the scriptures? <laughs> he doesn't mean that for me. He doesn't literally expect me to obey this, does he? Do you excuse yourself from obedience to Jesus? Do you sin even in the moment justifying yourself saying, well, but Jesus will forgive me afterwards anyways? We have seen the end of the libertine this morning. His head tossed down from a city wall. 
what Sheba is shouting to you, what Satan is offering to you, looks and sounds a lot like liberty. But it's lawlessness. And the lawless man and woman will receive the same fate as Sheba on Judgment Day. So, David realizes the imminent danger of this first man, Sheba, and he kicks things into action. And he calls his newly appointed general by the name of Amasa to gather up all the troops so they can chase after this, this man. The king, verse 4, said to Amasa, call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. But for whatever reason, we're not told why. Amasa is taking longer. Maybe the people are hard to find. Maybe he's not good at his job. We're not sure. But it takes him a while. And so then he summons his second in command in verse 6. David says to Abishai, Now she be the son of Bichri will do us even more harm than Absalom. Take the, your Lord's servants. Get after him, lest he find himself a fortified city and escape from us. So the first man he summons is named Amasa. The second man he summons is named Abishai. And yet somehow we find ourselves in verse 23 reading this. Now, Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. Something has happened between verse 6 and verse 23. Where Joab was not mentioned at all up here. And then somehow he is now commander-in-chief of the armies of Israel once again. And that something is wallowing in his own spilled intestines in the middle of the chapter. How did Joab regain control? How does he reassert his power over the people contrary to the king's command? Verse 8. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now, Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword and its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. So we had Sheba, the libertine. But now, secondly, we encounter Joab, the legalist. What we need here, he says, the reason men like Sheba are able to run rampant in this kingdom, the reason that this people is being ripped at the seams and about to fall apart is because we need a better general. A stronger commander. And that better general, that stronger commander, is me. So, naturally, he assassinates his own cousin. And then he sets up a test of loyalty for all the men of Israel. He establishes a law, a rule, a standard by which all the men of Israel are going to demonstrate their loyalty to the king. And who is that standard? Himself. He's the standard. Every man who would be loyal to David must also swear their fealty to Joab. Look at verse 11. 
one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa, and he said, Whoever favors Joab, uh, and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Whose name is mentioned twice versus one man's name being mentioned once there? It's almost like the messenger has to catch himself. He has to rephrase his statement. Whoever favors Joab, let me rephrase that. Whoever favors David must follow after Joab. And then Joab makes every man in the army march over the bleeding corpse of their general to demonstrate their loyalty to him. He leaves him in the highway, folks. A declaration that Joab does in fact deserve to be general and no one else. The legalist. The man or woman who establishes themselves, their morals, their standards, their laws as the rule. If you are a true follower of Jesus, then you must dress like I do, vote like I do, have political views like I do, homeschool like I do, raise your kids like I do. If you want to follow Jesus, I am the standard. There's a reason why the men stop whenever they get to Amasa's body laying there in the road. What Joab has done is astonishingly wicked. I mean, there's a lot of blood and gore in the Bible, but these men who have seen war battles, they are dumbfounded by what they find there in the middle of the road. And yet Joab says to them, you have two choices. You can march over this man's bloody corpse, or you can be disloyal to David, and those are your only two options. Joab is binding the consciences of the people, and he's binding their consciences to himself. Legalists love to present us with, an, with impossible questions. Do you first, here's your option one, do you want to march over the dying body of your general, or do you want to be utterly disloyal to the kingdom? It's like saying, do you want to drink cyanide or arsenic? Which one would you like? You have to choose. And you say, well, you know, is there a third option? Because I really would like to not poison myself. No, you have to choose. Not choosing isn't an option. Every election season, the voice of the legalist cries out in the public square. I wonder whether that voice is even crying out within your own heart about other people. I just don't see how a Christian could vote for that candidate. If you are a Christian, you have to vote for this candidate. Binding one another's... Where in the Bible does it say you have to vote for X, Y, or Z, this candidate? It doesn't. And yet, we bind one another. This is the truth. If in good conscience you cannot make a choice, then don't. I'm not here this morning to tell you who to vote for, but if you feel like you're having to choose between the lesser of two evils, maybe you should question why you're choosing evil in the first place. 
We have a president who stands in front of cameras holding a Bible and saying, if you are for God, you have to follow me. And then we have Christian activist groups over here saying, but if you're for Jesus and you stand for the savior of compassion, and if you're for God, then surely you must follow Joe Biden. It's a false choice. Brothers and sisters, let me free you this morning. You go into that ballot box and you vote your conscience and you don't let anyone else tell you differently because God's word does not tell you who to vote for. Legalism. It's a false choice. Whoever you check didn't check. Recognize that no Joab has a claim on your ultimate allegiance. That belongs to Jesus Christ and him alone. And when you get to heaven, I can guarantee you, Jesus is not going to judge you by the standard of which box you checked on a certain day every four years. The ultimatum is that we have to approve of Joab's doings in order to be followers of David. That is a false ultimatum. No man can make himself, his own actions, his doctrines, his opinions, the standard for your faith. That is what we call a cult. No pastor, no husband, no wife, no child, no boss, no politicians will be the standard against which you are measured when it comes to your relationship with Jesus Christ. And you and your preferences and opinions and choices and standards will not be used to judge the faith of anyone else on Judgment Day. Jesus is the standard. Romans 2. The nations show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, Paul says, God judges the secrets of men by what standard? By Christ Jesus. Thankfully, in a world about to be destroyed by libertines and legalists going to war with one another, there is a wise woman. This is always the way it works, isn't it, ladies? A wise woman intervenes. Joab and his men are battering the gates, and they're building siege works, and they're about to pull every brick out of the wall of this town until they crush it. When a woman's voice calls down to him from atop the wall, verse 16, then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. Verse 17, and he came near to her and the woman said, are you Joab? He said, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I'm one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Libertines and legalists waging war with one another, burning down the kingdom of God and Satan just sitting there eating popcorn. The voice of wisdom says, why, O Sheba? Why, O Joab? 
Why will you all swallow up the heritage of the Lord? The voice of wisdom calls us to peace. The voice of wisdom reestablishes steadfastness and faithfulness. The voice of wisdom cuts off libertines like Joab and confronts legalists, uh, libertines like Sheba, and confronts legalists like Joab. This morning, the voice of wisdom says to God's people what we already know to be true. Jesus is the Lord of the conscience. To those of us who are tempted to excuse our sin and disobedience, the voice of wisdom cries, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. To those who are tempted to treat the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a get-out-of-jail-free card for any sin you may want to commit, the voice of wisdom chides, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And to those of us who are tempted to establish ourselves as kings and judges, to make ourselves the standard, and who are driven to anger and wrath when people do not live up to the false standards we have created, the voice of wisdom commands, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. He's the king there, not you. To which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Each of us will answer to one man, one king alone for the guilt that we may or may not be feeling in our consciences. Jesus Christ. Sin may feel like freedom today. The world certainly makes it seem that way, don't they? But this morning we're confronted with the truth. There is a guillotine waiting for every libertine who wants to go out and live as though there is no punishment for sin. Perhaps more surprising is the fact that Job the legalist will meet his end. And he's going to die slaughtered next to the altar of the Lord. Divine wrath and just, justice against him. So whether you may think you tend towards Sheba or Joab, neither one is an option. Neither will have a clean conscience on the day of judgment. What about you? The voice of wisdom calls every guilty conscience to the cross of Jesus Christ. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus died for libertines and legalists alike. His blood shed on the cross is the only thing that can wash our consciences clean. But not only that, help us to stop doing the dead works that give us guilty consciences and begin to do acts of righteousness that serve the living God. Will you repent this morning, O libertine? Will you repent, O legalist? Will you believe in the Lord of the conscience, Jesus Christ? One last thing. I wanted to tell you about this great idea I had about making a giant cheese. 
you know what, we'll, we'll talk about that on another day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would free us from the burdens that we may have tied up and placed on our own backs that we were never meant to carry. We pray that you would free us from the judgment that we feel towards others who have made different personal choices than us. Lord Jesus, we pray even more that you forgive us when we use your forgiveness as an excuse to keep on sinning. We pray, may your spirit speak with wisdom into our hearts and bring peace to our consciences. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have washed us clean. We trust in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.